0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're, listen, you're, you're listening. listening. You're listening. listen to, to Tara. Tara. I'm Sarah Chitzas
1: and I'm Elizabeth Dowdell
0: and we'll be your hosts for a half hour look at our archives.
1: Before we begin our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present meeting place of the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Salteau, the Nakota Sioux, and the Dene. Our recording studio in Amiskwichi is Papa's Chase land.
0: We are grateful to work, live, and study on this land. As we educate and share on environmental issues and stories, we recognize that as settlers, we are not the ones to start this work, but rather need to work in solidarity as treaty people with the Indigenous nations that have been protecting this land since time immemorial.
1: We encourage you, as we go through this episode, and afterwards, to find out about the land you live on, educate yourself about decolonization, and learn about the ways you can uplift Indigenous peoples and work towards Indigenous sovereignty through solidarity.
0: This week, we're taking a look at our archives to discuss environmental racism in Canada. Environmental racism refers to environmental injustices faced by racialized communities. Environmental racism is often enabled and upheld by state policies that allow for racial minority communities to be disproportionately burdened by environmental risks and harms.
1: The environmental justice movement generally aims to eliminate environmental injustices, including environmental racism. More specifically, it examines the distributions of environmental risks and benefits, supports the inclusion of community input in decision-making and emphasizes respecting Indigenous knowledge.
0: To learn more about environmental racism in Canada, we'll be revisiting an episode from July 2020, where Tara and former Charlotte Thomason speaks to Dr. Ingrid Waldron about environmental racism against Indigenous and Black communities in Nova Scotia.
1: Dr. Waldron is a professor at Dalhousie University and author of the book, There's Something in the Water, Environmental Racism in Indigenous and Black communities.
0: Dr. Waldron's book is the basis for the Netflix documentary, There's Something in the Water, which follows actor Elliot Page as he travels across Nova Scotia to look at cases of environmental racism.
2: My name is Dr. Ingrid Waldron. My pronouns are And I am an associate professor in the School of Nursing in the Faculty of Health at Dalhousie University and the director of the Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequities and Community Health Project. And that's uh, the acronym for that project is the ENRICH project.
3: How do you think that environmental racism and anti-Blackness are embedded into the state of Canada?
2: Africville was a situation where uh, African Nova Scotians in that community were forced out of their community to make way for industrial development. And what was left in the wake of that rezoning of Africville and the Kind of forcing the community members out of their neighborhood was uh, environmental hazards of many kinds. So I would say Africville is both a a case of gentrification perhaps, or what we often call urban renewal, and environmental racism. Later, uh, in the early 1970s, we have another case of environmental racism impacting an African Nova Scotian community, uh, specifically in Lincolnville. And a landfill was placed in that community in and around 1974. And later in 2006, a second generation landfill was placed on top of the first generation landfill. So there was a lot of you know, protests and rallies to remove the first generation landfill. And I think the community thought that that was going to happen. So it was a bit of a slap in the face when a second-generation landfill was put on top of the first-generation landfill in 2006. So that's a community that's been dealing with high rates of cancer um, and other illnesses since at least 1974. There's another African Nova Scotian community, uh, specifically in the south end of Shelburne, that has had a landfill in their community since the late 1940s. They were successful in getting that landfill closed in December of 2016 but are still suffering the impacts of that landfill with respect to poor health outcomes, and once again, specifically cancer. So I think there are enough cases in Nova Scotia to kind of indicate that anti-Blackness and environmental injustices go hand in hand in many cases. And I always say that environmental racism often illustrates that, you know, people who are racialized or racialized bodies, that they are devalued. They're seen as unworthy and invaluable in many ways. And certainly I think the, I think Black people, more specifically, are seen as not having any worth in in Canada and in Nova Scotia. So it's not surprising to me then that African Nova Scotian communities would be selected for waste sites and dumps and landfills of various kinds because of the ways in which we typically tend to disregard uh, black life in Canada and in North America in general.
3: So what is environmental racism? It's the way in which governments and developers put hazardous facilities like dumps and sites of heavy pollution in areas that are predominantly populated by Black and Indigenous people. Like many other forms of racism, environmental racism is embedded into the state of Canada. Throughout history, and continuing today, anti-Blackness in the province of Nova Scotia has been pervasive. It is not an accident that waste facilities end up by these marginalized communities. This is a calculated choice because of the state's view of people of color minimizing the values of their lives. Dr. Waldron is also the director of the Environmental Noxious Racial Inequalities and Community Health Project, or ENRICH. This project investigates the socio-economic, political, and health effects of environmental racism in indigenous and African Nova Scotian communities. Can you tell me a little bit about what the Enrich Project is and, and kind of like what inspired you to take on that work?
2: I was actually um, asked to take on the Enrich Project. I actually didn't know anything about environmental racism or about the communities that were impacted uh, until around 2012 when an environmental activist who had been extremely active around the Lincolnville situation met with me. Uh, to ask me to take on a project on environmental racism. And I, you know, I didn't know what it was, so I asked him to explain it. And, you know, I was a bit hesitant to take on this project because I had never delved into the issue of environment or environmental justice in my work, in my education, in my doctoral work, in my postdoctoral work. Completely missed that topic, right? So I was hesitant to take it on, but I did recognize quite quickly that... uh, You know, that I would be dealing through that project with indigenous communities and black communities, communities that I had worked with and communities that I had an interest in. And also as a health researcher, I recognized very quickly that environmental racism is ultimately a health issue. And I just explained, you know, cases whereby that is the reality that many of these communities that are near to landfills, for example, believe that increasing rates of cancer in their communities due to their proximity uh, to some of these uh, waste sites. So I recognized very quickly that it was a health issue and that perhaps, uh, you know, I should take it on as a health researcher. So that that was in 2012 in the spring. Uh, and then later in the fall of 2012, I started to build a team uh, recognizing, of course, that this needed to be a community-based project. It had to be community-led and that the team needed to be comprised of community members and leaders from the Mi'kmaq community, from the African Nova Scotian community, as well as professors and students and volunteers and health professionals. So later that year, and also throughout 2013, I started to build relationships with these communities by holding uh, workshops and meetings in their communities. And also starting to connect with governments as well, to kind of identify ways in which a government could support the project and support communities.
3: The health impacts to Black communities from toxic waste go beyond physical effects. Being near these sites and facing stigma creates psychosomatic strain on the mental health of community members. I was on the Enrich website and I was looking at the map, which blots out where waste disposal facilities are and, and where black and indigenous communities are located and it was honestly like pretty striking to see that correlation visualized i'm kind of wondering like beyond the immediate health impacts of essentially like poisoning the community like higher rates of cancer how does the psychological stress of environmental racism affect racialized people in nova scotia
2: i think that's a really important point because i think it's an issue
3: that tends to be
2: ignored or obscured in many ways. There's certainly a focus on the physical health impacts, respiratory illness, reproductive illness, cancer, et cetera. But we often don't talk about the psychological impacts, and that's something that I continue to do in my work. It is incredibly stressful to know or to feel that if, for example, you drink the water, that you are in some way risking your health or your life. But as well, you know, community members have expressed to me just the stigma of living near to a waste site and how they're perceived by other people in their community. So for example, I remember holding a an event, a press event back in 2017 where community leader Louise DeLille, who lives in The African Nova Scotian community of South Shelburne talked at length about the stigmatizing effects of being close to a landfill and the way in which African Nova Scotians are regarded or viewed by individuals who live in the north of Shelburne. She talked about how stigmatizing it was, how it contributed to a sense of low self-esteem and self-worth. And I think that has to be taken into account when we talk about the psychological impacts. But, you know, going back to the issue of stress, we certainly know that stress is uh, both a psychological and physical health impact, right? So it has, you know, we can't separate the psychological from the health uh, impacts, but stress is a psychological or psychosocial stressors like living near a landfill has real impact psychologically, but also that that, that psychological impact also expresses itself in the body. You know, So when we are highly stressed, we know that it raises our cortisol levels. And when our cortisol level is raised, it predisposes us to a number of uh, physical uh, health uh, issues. So for me, the psychological impacts go hand in hand with the physical impacts. But I do want there to be more of a focus on What that does to the psyche because as people who are already seen as unworthy people who are disregarded i think we need to put that in context when we think about anti-black racism and the people in nova scotia who are exposed to environmental hazards that this is just another kind of layering uh, that happens on top of you know existing perceptions of black people in nova scotia and canada this just further Impacts the ways in which they see themselves and how other people see them. So it's like stigma upon stigma. And when you constantly experience that type of stigma, whether it's stigma of environmental racism or stigma that you experience in the school system or stigma that you experience just societally, it erodes away at your self worth and your self esteem. So I think it's really important to see environmental racism in the context of other forms of racism. Um, to not see it as disconnected, but as connected to other forms of racism that African Nova Scotians specifically experience here in Nova Scotia.
1: You're listening to Tara Informa. In this Archive episode from 2020, Charlotte Thomason interviews Dr. Ingrid Waldron. Let's hear them discuss resistance to environmental racism and Black liberation.
3: Though the state has created calculated detrimental effects on black and indigenous communities, there has always been resistance and leadership within those communities to fight for their right to a clean and healthy environment. Thinking about the stories of like resistance to these projects from people like Louise, from the grassroots grandmothers, um, from Michelle Francis Denny, and even here, on the west side of the country with the Wet'suwet'en matriarchs. It really, like, highlighted for me that often, like, women and femmes are kind of at the forefront of these movements. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, if you have any thoughts on, like, why you think that is.
2: Yes, a great question, because I started to wonder that, you know, as as I moved along in the project, in the Enriched project, I started to question that, because I noticed that, you know, the people that I... I was meeting they were all women and whenever I held an event you know I was inviting the women because I hadn't really met any men who were at the forefront and that's certainly not to say you know I don't want to disregard the men that's not to say that men aren't uh uh, aren't active around environmental issues but there was a theme that was emerging and it was mostly women and I started to question it and I started to kind of as I was questioning this issue I started to wonder whether or not that had any kind of you know, emotional impact? What's this psychological tool for, for doing this work for years, for decades for Indigenous women and Black women? And I remember at an event, I, I kind of questioned that. And Doreen Bernard, who's been fighting the Alton Gas Project in her community, said to me, she said, um, Ingrid, this is part of our duty as Indigenous women. This is part of our culture. We give life We're responsible for giving life. We give life, so we are responsible for addressing environmental issues. And yeah, I mean, I was, (laughs) I didn't know that, right? You know, because I was here, I was frustrated, and she wasn't. She was like, this is just part of what we do. This is what women do in our culture. This is our duty. We are responsible for protecting the water and for defending the land. So it all makes sense to me now, right? Because this is kind of indigenous culture. But then when I think of the African Nova Scotian community where I was also seeing the same thing, I was seeing women taking up that responsibility. I didn't think to myself, well, is there something about black culture, uh, people of African descent, where women are at the forefront of environmental issues? And you know, I, I already think there is. I think we see there's a history of that Black women taking up leadership positions in community. So beyond environmental racism, living here in Nova Scotia and being part of various community initiatives, and I look at who's on the board, and I look at the membership, and I look at who is doing a lot of the work, I see a lot of Black women. And I saw that when I was living in Toronto, right? So I think there's something to that that, Certainly, historically, I think Black women have taken up leadership positions when it comes to community development and community initiatives. Um, Certainly in the Black community, we have a matriarchal structure for a number of reasons. And I think that matriarchal structure informs the kinds of um, resistance that we see among Black women in the broader society. Black women have often been prevented from taking up those positions, particularly historically, because of sexism and -hmm. racism and the intersections of of those two issues. You know, we look back to the civil rights movement and we tend to honor the men, uh, people like Malcolm X. And, uh, you know, the the men are the people that have gotten the attention. Angela Davis has also gotten a lot of attention, but certainly uh, not as much as the men have. So I think, in many ways, Black women have been disregarded, but that has a lot to do with racism and sexism. But what we're seeing today is that Black women are leading these movements and certainly leading environmental justice movements as well here in Nova Scotia.
3: So what, in your opinion, does attaining Black liberation look like? And kind of like, what is your imagined future for this land and the people living on it?
2: For me, Black liberation has to start first with white people. <laughs> in order for us to be liberated in many ways, yes, we have to be able to understand ourselves and to accept ourselves, but we're, we're not, we don't have the power to dismantle systems of privilege and power. Mm-hmm. White, white people are in positions of power to do that. So I think they have to acknowledge the reality of racism and the privilege they hold simply due to white skin color privilege you know because we we all know about the white people who say i don't got i don't have any power i don't have any privilege i'm struggling to pay my fees and we hear that often and what we try to get across is no it's not about necessarily always about uh, whether or not you are financially well off but it's just the mere fact that you have access to certain resources in our society prized resources simply because of your skin color so i think we have to but white people have to understand the reality of racism. I'm seeing that a little bit more this year with you know everything happening, whether it's COVID and, and you know, anti-black police violence. I think uh, there are a lot of institutions that are certainly indicating that they understand that and willing to, to do various things to address it. White people really need to understand that, I would say, in their psyches and their souls. What does white privilege look like? Um, how do they embody it? And What does it mean for them? How can they use that privilege uh, to dismantle the systems of power that continue to privilege them and to exclude and marginalize and oppress racialized people? So I think Black liberation in many ways can only be realized if white people do that uh, work. And that work involves some intellectual work. It involves questioning and challenging Those inequitable and unjust policies, because you're not going to act on that. You're not going to act on anything or address anything until you first question critically those policies and decisions and practices that are entrenched within all of our social structures. I also think, in terms of Black liberation, what I've seen this year has been stunning and thrilling. The protests, the rallies, the revolt, if you want to say that, the civil disobedience. I think certainly the world. Was galvanized around the George Floyd murder, and that's fantastic. And we saw Black Lives Matter up the ante in many ways, right? So we saw calls for you know abolishing the police and defunding the police. And I think that kind of galvanizing and that solidarity amongst Black people was thrilling to see. And also the fact that there were initiatives that took place to ensure that all voices were included, right? So you saw people within the BLM movement and others who were also saying that all black lives have, have to matter. And that means members of the LGBTQ community and specifically trans uh, women of color as well. Um, so that was great in terms of the galvanizing of people across the world, but the galvanizing amongst black people. And I think an increasing recognition Uh, that we need to look at all those intersections, right? We need to look at gender identity and sexual orientation, social class, that we need to understand the specific experiences of different groups within, you know, Black, this Black category that we have. But once we understand their unique and distinct positionings and experiences, we also have to transcend that and come together as Black people. Uh, So I think there's always a place for protest and rallies and revolt and civil disobedience because it brings attention to an issue. It's really important for mobilizing people and we saw that this year in a way that we have never seen in our lifetime. What's so interesting about 2020 is that, at least from my perspective, we've never seen a pandemic like COVID-19 and we have never ever seen a rally around Black life that we have seen this year. So I think that's important, but I always say that demands from the street are simply demands from the street. They need to be translated into policy, of course. So the rallies and the protests are fantastic in terms of bringing attention to it, but it means very little unless those demands from the streets are, are translated into policy actions and practices, that's, so that means putting pressure on our elected officials to change policies and systems that continue uh, to harm Black life. I also think education is important. And I think about young Black leaders uh, that are inspiring to me, and they need to continue to educate themselves, but we also need to you know, provide them with the critical tools in our school system to continue to lead because they are our future leaders. What I see is lacking in our school system in Canada, in our curricula, high school and middle school curricula, are courses on social justice, real rigorous courses on social justice issues, and also courses on the histories of Black people in Canada. Um, That's something that's lacking. And I think until we address those gaps in the curriculum in terms of the kinds of courses that we're offering students around social justice issues, racism, anti-racism, environmental racism, the history of Black life in Canada, then we're not equipping students and young people and Black people uh, to take on many of these issues. So, I think that's important as well. And uh, Just in terms of environmental racism, um, I just think we need environmental racism legislation. We have yet to see that in Canada. We have yet to see the passing into law of an environmental bill that centers the experiences of Black people who are close to uh, waste dumps and Indigenous people across Canada who are disproportionately exposed to pollution. So, I think with respect to environmental racism specifically, I'm still waiting for a uh, policy, a bill um, of some kind that centers the experiences of black people and indigenous people. Uh, and for black people, um, black liberation means that they continue to do what I've, I, see, I saw them do this year or I'm seeing this year in 2020, um, to continue to put pressure on our political leaders.
0: That was Charlotte Thomason interviewing Dr. Ingrid Waldron in 2020. Speaking of legislation that addresses environmental racism, Bill C-230, also called the National Strategy to Redress Environmental Racism, has passed its second reading.
1: So what does this mean for environmental racism in Canada?
0: If passed, Bill C-230 would mean that the Canadian Minister of the Environment would collect data and information on the location of environmental hazards and on negative health outcomes in communities that have faced environmental racism. Legislators would have more clear information on environmental racism in Canada so they can make policy recommendations that effectively address it.
1: Bill C-230 also requires that the Minister of the Environment creates a strategy, in collaboration with community groups, to compensate individuals or communities who have been affected by environmental racism, to amend federal laws, policies and programs, and to provide ongoing funding to affected communities.
0: This bill will not be able to eliminate environmental racism all on its own but it may be the first step toward redressing past and ongoing harm and creating real change in Canada. More information about Bill C-230 can be found in our March 2021 News Roundup episode.
1: Well, that's all the time we have for this week. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Dowdell, and Sarah says Thanks for listening.
0: Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. If you like what you heard, check out our website, Facebook, or follow us on Twitter.
1: Catch you next week, right here
0: on Terra Informa.